Hello and welcome to Pod Songs. I'm Jack Stafford and I interview inspiring people in service to others as inspiration for a new song. Today I'm speaking with a biologist and author of 15 books and more than 90 scientific papers. He's best known for his hypothesis of morphic resonance, as well as conversations with such luminaries as Krishnamurti and Terence McKenna. I'm honored myself to be able to speak with Rupert Sheldrake. Okay, hello Rupert, welcome to Pod Songs. Good to be with you. Well, there's so much we could talk about, um, but to condense it down, and what I'd really like to write a song about is uh, The Science Delusion, the book that you wrote um, about how science is essentially unscientific and doesn't follow, live up to its own principles. Now, just to give a bit of a background on this book, did you write it because you originally came out with the, your morphic resonance theory and... Um, did you write this book as a reaction to the reaction you received for that? No, um, from a very early age, you know, when I was about 17 or 18, when I was an undergraduate um, uh, and just before that, I began to think there was something seriously wrong with the way mechanistic materialism worked in science. It started with um, having a job in my gap year in a research lab where I was a junior technician. Um, I was very keen to be a scientist. I wanted research experience. I wanted a scientific future. Um, so I applied for a job to fill in the gap between leaving school and going to university. And I ended up unwittingly as the junior technician in a vivisection facility mm. where every day large numbers of animals were tortured, poisoned, and killed. Um, and I went into biology in the first place because I loved animals. I kept pets, and I was uh, you know, very keen on animals. So I began to feel something had gone horribly wrong. <laughs> um, that wasn't on the job description. <laughs> <laughs> and when I was a student at Cambridge, you know, doing biology, I noticed that the first thing we did with animals and plants that we were studying was to kill them and then cut them up. Um, and I just felt something about life was simply being missed. I kept homing pigeons as a child, and I was fascinated, and still am, about how they find their home. And yet, by the time you killed a pigeon and cut out its liver and ground it up and extracted its DNA, uh, you know, everything that was really <laughs> interesting about its behavior seemed to have disappeared. So. Actually, long before my morphic resonance ideas or my research on psychic phenomena, I, I was thinking there was something had gone seriously wrong with science and that there was a serious problem with this mechanistic dogmatism. So in a sense, my whole career has been about that. And I've tried to find alternative pathways, uh, you know, morphic resonance, mm -hmm. looking at telepathy, psychic phenomena, uh, the sense of being stared at, um, I wrote a book called Seven Experiments That Could Change the World. I've tried many ways of um, trying to broaden out, enlarge the scientific worldview from mm -hmm. this narrow tunnel vision of mechanistic materialism. Everything's a machine, everything's unconscious, matter's purposeless, evolution has no meaning, the mind's nothing but the brain. Um, the, um, so actually this book is a culmination of my whole scientific career 
Incidentally, it's just come out in a new edition, uh, updated in the light of what's happened since the first edition was published. I saw that. Well, congratulations. No, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing book, and um, I'm sure you've been through it hundreds of times. But uh, for the benefit of our listeners, could you give me, and also for the benefit of my song, what you would like to see highlighted? Could you give some of the highlights of the book? Well, basically, the current dominant orthodoxy in science is that nature is dead, mechanical, inanimate, unconscious. Evolution is purposeless. Our mind is nothing but the activity of our brains. Um, minds are inside head, heads. Memories are inside brains. Mechanistic medicines, the only kind that really works, because we're nothing but physics and chemistry. Therefore, surgery and drugs are all that are needed. These are the basic assumptions. Um, and what I'm doing in the book is, is challenging these the 10 basic dogmas of science. And what I think uh, these challenges lead towards is an alternative view of the universe as the whole universe is a living organism, starting small, like with the Big Bang, is more like ancient myths of the hatching of the cosmic egg. Mm. And then the universe grows, and as it grows, new things appear within it as the whole cosmos evolves, and that evolution continues on Earth, in biology, and in human culture, and in human lives. Um, that it's a great unfolding creative process, um, rather than a mechanical system unconsciously following laws that were laid down at the very moment of the Big Bang and have never changed since. Um, so nature is alive, organic, evolving. And I think with many kinds of consciousness or awareness or experience at all different levels of nature, including atoms and molecules and cells and plants and animals and uh, us, of course, and ecosystems and the whole Earth, and then the whole solar system and galaxies and the entire cosmos. It's a living, organic, evolving, conscious um, universe with memory, uh, rather than being amnesic, which is the current view. Um, and our minds are much more extensive than our brains. And also, our minds are part of a much larger conscious system, the whole universe. And um, in fact, many religious and spiritual practices are about um, connecting with these larger forms of consciousness in the universe, um, and indeed forms of consciousness that go beyond the universe. Um, and this is a very different perspective. It's one that's open to spiritual practice and spiritual traditions as I show in my recent books, Science and Spiritual Practices and Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. And so forcing everything into this narrow mechanistic materialist worldview um, gives us this depressing view of nature as entirely purposeless and unconscious. Our minds as nothing but our brains. Um, it's a totally depressing worldview. And I think it's no coincidence that the endemic mental disorder of modern secular societies is depression. Mm -hmm. So you say that science wants this one free miracle. We can have the Big Bang. Oh, and after that, we've got the rules and then... That's the usual assumption, yes, that give us one free miracle and we'll explain the rest. And the one free miracle is the coming into being of the entire universe, all the matter and energy and all the laws that govern it 
from nothing in a single instant. Mm -hmm. That's the conventional view. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just such a limited, narrow view. It's also so completely unprovable. Nobody was there to observe the Big Bang. <laughs> um, and um, you know it's entirely speculative um, and then because scientists assume that all the laws were laid down at the moment of the Big Bang um, then they have to explain why the laws are, are, are as they are um, and that means they all had to be sort of fine-tuned exactly for the right kind of universe for us to exist in and then they get into a kind of scholastic debate um, which, in my view, is totally unnecessary, but this dominates uh, the thinking of serious scientists. Um, either there must have been some kind of external intelligence that twiddled the knobs and fine-tuned the laws of nature so they were all exactly right, and fixing the fundamental constants to exactly the right value, a kind of external engineering god who designs and programs the universe uh, and then presses the start button, or um, there must be billions of universes besides our own, of which ours happens to be the right one for us, just by chance. Um, and actually, surprisingly, a great number of highly respected cosmologists and people like, for example, Lord Rees, who was president of the Royal Society and Master of Trinity College, Cambridge, and Astronomer Royal, um, prefer the idea that there are billions of universes besides our own. Uh, because they think they can get rid of God that way. Um, uh, but um, this is the ultimate violation of Occam's razor, the principle that one shouldn't multiply entities unnecessarily. This is the ultimate violation because it postulates quadrillions uh, of uh, unobserved universes. I, I interviewed uh, Sean Carroll and his theory of um, many worlds, so that, you know, the experiment's when you split it with the experiments that it goes on, there's multiple. Exactly. And ultimately extravagant hypothesis for which there's not a shred of evidence. And interestingly, Sean Carroll um, is an absolutely militant skeptic who totally denies that telepathy or any phenomenon like this can possibly exist because he says there's no evidence for it. Actually, there's tons of evidence for it and he just chooses not to read it because it doesn't fit his worldview. Yet, he's perfectly prepared to believe that there are billions of unobserved universes <laughs> without a shred of evidence. It shows a weird double standard, which is all too common among eminent scientists. It is. So let's, let's zero in on that. So... How how is these these ten um, dogmas? Are these the, did you focus on them, or are these the these the ten that science itself stands for? Well, they're usually implicit. Scientists okay. are not actually taught about them. It's not like a catechism that they undergo. Uh, <laughs> You're like a doctor. <laughs> you yeah. have to take these ten boxes. It's not exactly like that. It's that these are the assumptions that are just taken for granted and built in to a scientific education. Um, so can you give us some examples? Like, uh... Well, first of all, the, the, the first one is that nature is mechanical. It's like mm -hmm. a machine. Okay. Now, this was built into science in the 17th century. Um, at, right at the foundation of modern science, the scientific revolution of the 17th century was a revolution precisely because it said nature is unconscious machinery. And... Why it was a revolution is that in the Middle Ages, the universities and monasteries and church schools taught that 
the universe was an organism, that the earth was alive, Mother Earth, that animals and plants had souls. This was the view in the doctrines of St. Thomas Aquinas that was the medieval orthodoxy. It was an animistic view of nature. Nature was alive, planets were alive, stars <clears throat> uh, had angelic intelligences guiding them. They had intelligences and consciousness associated with them. When they looked at the sky, it was full of intelligent, conscious beings. Earth was full of living beings. Mechanistic science was a revolution precisely <clears throat> by rejecting that worldview, saying nature's just a machine. And that's been taken for granted ever since. The second assumption is that this matter of which the machinery of nature is made is unconscious. It has no sentience, no meaning, no consciousness. Um, so the whole universe is basically unconscious matter. Again, that's an assumption. You can't actually prove that it's all unconscious. But they were rejecting the earlier worldview, which in medieval Europe was very similar to the worldview we find in all other religions and cultures, namely the view that nature's alive, animistic nature, or what's now called panpsychist view, which is coming back again. Um, so then thirdly, um, the assumption was that there's no purpose in nature. How can dead unconscious matter have any purpose? Uh, so evolution has no purpose. The cosmos has no purpose. Life is ultimately utterly meaningless. Um, then the fourth view is that the total amount of matter and energy is always the same. Um, that can't change. The principle of conservation of matter and energy is taught in every school. And, um, uh, but what's wrong with that is, first of all, it leads to the idea it all suddenly appeared at the Big Bang from nowhere, with this miracle that Terence McKenna used to refer to, the one free miracle. Um, and, and secondly, um, scientists themselves have invented vastly more matter and energy in the last 30 years. First, dark matter, about five times more than regular matter to explain why their theories don't explain the behavior of galaxies. They've invented invisible matter to make their equations balance and just as much as needed to make the equations right. balance. <laughs> and, and nobody knows what it is. Um, and it's never been observed. Well, it's um, dark, you know. It's dark, it's invisible. <laughs> and then when they'd added in all this extra matter, uh, the universe should have had vastly more matter, vastly more gravitation that should have stopped it expanding and started to pull it in so that it pulled in, contracted more and more till it all ended in tears with the opposite of the Big Bang called the Big Crunch. Um, and only unfortunately for that theory, around the year 2000, um, astronomers found that the universe was not slowing down in its expansion. In fact, it was speeding up contrary to all these theories. So they then invented dark energy to explain it, to push it out. Um, and now the total amount of dark matter and dark energy makes up 95% of all reality. In other <laughs> words, 95% of reality is utterly unknown to us. Um, it's as if they've discovered the cosmic unconscious. Um, and so the idea that the total amount of matter and energy is always the same begins to look a little bit threadbare when you can invent sort of 20 times more than was previously known. And no one raises an eyebrow or 
uh, object at all because scientists just say, oh, well, it must be there because it fits in, need, we need it for our equations and to explain the facts. Um, so oh, I wish everything, I wish my, you know, my, my, when I did my accounts, it worked like this or, you know, your taxes. Absolutely. If you could just sort of, if 95% could remain entirely in the dark, you know, uh, say what kind of world would we live in? Um, well, then there's the assumption that all biological inheritance is uh, material in genes uh, or in epigenetic modifications of genes. Uh, this is the kind of Richard Dawkins view, the, the selfish gene theory. Mm. It's nothing but selfish genes uh, competing uh, with each other. Uh, well, that turns out to be incredibly naive. A lot of inheritance um, doesn't depend on genes uh, or even on epigenetic modifications of genes. There's now uh, there's the so-called missing heritability problem whereby a great deal of inheritance is simply not explained. The Human Genome Project highlighted this. At first, it was supposed to be the ultimate triumph, and it turned out that this, it, it just turned to dust. How much this did it cost triumph. again, the whole project? Oh, billions. I mean, it, the, human, the public genome project cost about three billion, and the private one must have cost a similar amount. And since then, there's been many, many more billions invested in it. And um, so, I mean, it's a technical triumph and it has some uses. We can learn about our individual ancestry, you know, by DNA tests and so on. But it's by no means as useful as it was expected to be because it turns out that genes only explain 5 to 10% of inheritance for most conditions. For a few rare diseases like cystic fibrosis and sickle cell anemia that depend, that depend on a single defective gene, it gives a good account of what's going on, but for most things it doesn't. Um, so there, that's a, a dogma that um, science has had to move beyond. Then uh, there's the idea that all the laws of nature are fixed and I think they're more like habits. I think they evolve along with the universe. That's the basis of my own morphic resonance hypothesis, um, which has the idea, which says there's a kind of memory in nature. The current view says there's no memory in nature. But I think if there's a memory in nature and if the regularities of nature can evolve as habits, then you don't have to say all the laws of nature were there at the beginning in the Big Bang and the whole of this debate about whether there's one universe or trillions of universes, the, the multiverse versus universe uh, idea, all that debate just evaporates away like the, the morning mist. Um, <laughs> it, it's just totally unnecessary um, because the habits can evolve by a kind of cosmic Darwinism. Only successful habits succeed. Um, unsuccessful habits die out and successful habits through repetition become more habitual that's what morphic resonance does it reinforces habits um, okay so that's uh, then there's the idea that another assumption dogma is that memories are stored in brains from materialist everything has to be material so memories have to be material things in brains yet a hundred years of research of failed to find them. And I think that's because they're not there. I think the brain works more like a TV receiver than a video recorder um, and tunes in to the past by morphic resonance. 
Morphic resonance works on the basis of similarity, and we're more similar to ourselves in the past than we are to anyone else. Therefore, we get the most specific resonance from ourselves. But we also tune into other people who are similar to us and pick up collective memories as well, a bit like Jung's idea of the collective unconscious. So memories may not be stored in our brains. Um, then the idea that a mind's are nothing but brain activity uh, says that everything that goes on in your subjective uh, life is inside your head. When I see your image on a screen now, that image is supposed to be inside my head in full color. Uh, the whole room I'm in, the 3D image of the room as I look around, is supposed to be inside my head as a kind of virtual reality display. And yet, there's not a shred of evidence that that's the case. Um, and what I'm suggesting is my image of you is exactly where it seems to be. It's in my mind, but not in my brain. Our minds extend out beyond our brains. And they reach out to touch what we're looking at. We project out the images of what we're seeing. When we look in a mirror, we're seeing our projections. They're behind the mirror. They go straight through the mirror. Every time we look in a mirror, we experience how we're projecting things out. Um, and uh, on the basis of this, I predicted that when we look at things, we may affect them, and therefore people might be able to tell when they're being stared at from behind. There should be such a thing as the sense of being stared at. And lo and behold, it turns out this is a terribly common experience. Over 90% of the population have had this experience, and experimental tests show that it really does exist. So um, then there's the idea that um, mechanistic medicine is the only kind that really works because we're nothing but physico-chemical machines and physics and chemistry are the basis of all medical problems. So therefore, surgery and drugs are the only kinds of valid medicine, and that's orthodox medicine. And indeed it works. I mean, if you've got a broken bone, uh, surgery really helps. And uh, we're all very grateful for modern dentistry, which is where the mechanistic approach works particularly well, teeth um, and false teeth and fillings and stuff. Um, you know, we're all immensely grateful for that. It really works. A lot of drugs really work. But there's many other aspects to healing and medicine as well, which complementary and alternative medicines uh, take advantage of, but regular medicine ignores. Um, and I think if we had a more holistic approach to life and nature, then we'd have a more holistic or integrated medical system that uses all the advantages of modern medicine, but also takes into account uh, what's been learned over the centuries in other systems like Ayurvedic medicine in India, acupuncture in China, and so on, um, shamanic healing techniques, the effects of prayer, and what are often lumped together as the placebo effect, which shows that our expectations, our mental and emotional expectations, affect healing, which modern medicine ignores. In fact, it treats the placebo effect as a nuisance that interferes with clinical trials of new drugs. Um, but actually, the placebo effect works. It's one of the most powerful effects known in medicine. And some alternative therapies may indeed be tapping into the placebo effect. But if so, then they work. And 
the fact they the way they work isn't explained by physics or chemistry doesn't really matter but it, all that matters is whether they work or not um, so I think these are the the general um, assumptions within the standard scientific worldview, which I think we can go beyond. And by going beyond them in these ways, I think science would actually become more scientific, not less so. In fact, I think it's pseudo-scientific to deny all these things in the name of science, uh, because science shouldn't be a belief system, a dogmatic belief system that's taken on blind faith, which it is for many people, mm -hmm. especially for believers in scientism who've made science a kind of religion. Instead, science should be a system of open-minded inquiry based on testing hypotheses, looking for evidence, and so on. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. I recommend people read the book to go in deeper, though. But uh, yeah, you really, what you say is that science we speak of science as, a, as a, everyone's in agreement all science science is a unified theory and you know but it, it doesn't ex you don't wouldn't expect that from politics or something like that but no certainly not i mean in every other field of inquiry of human endeavor we're used to a multiplicity a, a, you know a multiculturalism as it were in the field of religion there's no one religion mm. you know there are several world religions christianity buddhism um, Islam, then there are other religions like Judaism, Hinduism, which are more localized. Um, and then there are many tribal religions and shamanic societies and so on. And even within those religions, there are many divisions, Protestants, Catholics, and, and then among Protestants, Baptists, Pentecostalists, you know, Anglicans, etc. Um, so uh, there's a tremendous diversity, and within politics, there's a tremendous diversity of views. That's why we have different political parties. Um, but within science, there's the idea there's just one science at any given time, which should be the same all over all over the world, you know, and taught in schools, as in fact it is in the same way, more or less, in China, India, South America, Europe, Russia, Africa, uh, one kind of science. Um, and actually, I think this is terribly bad. It leads to a kind of groupthink dogmatism, a kind of totalitarian mentality that shuts down dissent or treats it as heresy. And I think science would be a lot better off if it was more pluralistic. I mean, medicine's already pluralistic with all these different alternative and complementary mm. systems. Um, although the Medical Research Council here in Britain treats it as if there's only one valid kind, mechanistic medicine. So all of the taxpayers' money that's spent on medical research goes to just that. Um, and the rest are excluded because they must be fake medicine or crank medicine or whatever, quacks. Um, so I think that this totalitarian dogmatism is actually really harmful for science. And it would be much more healthy if we had a greater pluralism, a greater tolerance, and a greater plurality of sources of funding um, actually, there are now lots of very rich people and there are lots of private foundations. And um, if instead of following standard science, some of them started funding alternative science, uh, that could open things up um, mm. in, in a very healthy way, I think. Because you've been really, I mean, you've been attacked in like in the Nature editorial, you had a, your work was... I mean, you look like the Spanish Inquisition, the worst crimes of the Catholic Church is... 
Well, yes. I mean, this this kind of dogmatic thing has been is has been something I had to deal with all through my, well, not all through, but through much of my scientific career. I mean, the when my first book on morphic resonance came out, Nature denounced it as a book for burning. When I gave a TED talk on the science delusion in 2013, um, a, a couple of American militant atheists. P.Z. Myers and Jerry Coyne, who are kind of Richard Dawkins followers, um, denounced the TED organization, said that they brought their whole organization into disrepute. What I was talking was pseudoscience, and they should ban my talk forthwith. And foolishly, they tried to do that. The result is that it's all over the internet, and, and, and millions of people have seen it. And then this, this same attitude persists most noxiously uh, on Wikipedia, which has been captured by dogmatic materialists. Uh, and everything to do with alternative medicine, parapsychology, morphic resonance, has been completely captured by these people. My biography, for example, um, they're very keen to portray me as a pseudoscientist and um, you know, to try and discredit everything I say. So this is not as if this is just in the past. Mm. Uh, its most noxious form of dogmatism in the present is in Wikipedia. And the reason they put so much effort into capturing and dominating uh, Wikipedia in these areas is because they know that millions of people use it and assume that it's an authoritative, reliable account. And they can distort people's view of the world um, by manipulating uh, and, and biasing uh, Wikipedia. And they've been incredibly effective. All attempts to correct these things have been defeated because these seem to be well-funded groups who um, just relentlessly are monitoring it 24 hours a day. And if you went on and tried to change something, uh, they'd delete your changes within seconds. <laughs> on if your you own page. <laughs> Oh, you can't edit your own page because you're considered <laughs> an unreliable source about it. <laughs> no, no, I can't edit my own page, yeah. but people who've tried to edit it for me, yeah. um, if they've persisted, have been banned for life from editing Wikipedia yeah. on the grounds that they're violating the principle of neutral point of view. Neutral point of view is that I do research in parapsychology, among other things. Therefore, I'm a parapsychologist. And the reason they call me that is that if you look up Wikipedia on parapsychology, it says parapsychology is a pseudoscience. pseudoscience. Therefore, I'm a pseudoscientist. And why is it a pseudoscience? Well, because they say so, or at least uh, the, they quote uh, militant skeptics like P.Z. Myers and Jerry Coyne, the, the people who got my TED Talk banned who say so. So it's, it's a kind of echo chamber for these extremist, dogmatic, materialist views. So it's not as if these battles are over, they're very far from over, and the entire educational system is still propagating mechanistic materialism in schools and universities as the true version of nature as propagated by science. So this is a... It, these are very much living issues. And um, even though many people have moved on from mechanistic materialism and their own thinking, um, it hasn't affected the dominant orthodoxy as it dominates the educational system or the grant giving system or the peer review system in scientific journals. 
you you did try to debate with Richard Dawkins one time on his TV show, didn't you? Well, he tried to interview me for a TV show he was doing, um, and it was a sequel to his diatribe against religion, which was called The Root of All Evil. Um, and uh, it was he was doing a sequel uh, on telepathy and psychic phenomena and alternative medicine. Um, and I wasn't told this when they asked to interview me, um, but the secret, when it came out, it was called Enemies of Reason. Mm. And I only agreed to meet him on condition that he was actually interested in the evidence for things like telepathy. And when I met him, it turned out he wasn't at all interested. In fact, he refused to discuss it because he said it was so obviously untrue and nonsense. Um, so actually, I, I just said, look, you, you're, uh, you're here under false pretenses because I only agreed to do the interview. If you're interested in the evidence, you told me you're not. So I had to ask him to leave my house, which he did. Mm. Um, and they didn't show any of this interview on the, on the programme. Um, but as I said to him, you know, it's uh, to say that you're a scientist, to say that you're not interested in the evidence for a phenomenon like um, telepathy, and yet go around in public denouncing it, is not being a scientist, is being kind of ideological dogmatist. Uh, um, I mean, it's perfectly understandable if someone's not interested in telepathy. I mean, there are lots of people who are not interested in MOS genetics or solid state physics and so on. Um, that's fair enough. But um, uh, most people who aren't interested in MOS genetics or solid state physics don't appear on television denouncing these fields of inquiry. Uh, they simply ignore them. And if Dawkins isn't interested in psychic research, then I think he should simply ignore it, but not appear in public denouncing it, um, because that's just a ridiculous thing to do. Anyway, I'm afraid I'm going to have to go in a moment, but uh, do you have, uh, is there any other points we need to cover, uh, Jack? No, well, I think I can get a great song out of that. I just wanted to, um, well, I, could, I mean, I could talk to you for hours because, I mean, we're now in the podcast age, but you started your 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 conversations with Terence McKenna or, um, or the trilogues because there were there were three of you, which I, I really love that, by the way. The uh, When you're three in an interview, I mean, three in a conversation, it's, uh, did you come up with that trilogue or is that the original real world for, real word for it? Well, I think it, I think it does exist as a word, but we... We, we met uh, in the first place when Ralph Abraham, who's a chaos mathematician at the University of California in Santa Cruz, and Terence were great friends. And when I first went to California in 1982, a friend introduced me to Terence and Ralph happened to be staying with him at the time. So I met both of them together and it just worked as nothing had ever worked before in terms of conversation. We spent several hour, days in conversation and we met every year thereafter right up until just before Terence's death he died in 2000 mm. every year we'd spend several days together just having conversations and the first seven or eight years they weren't recorded they were just private conversations then mm -hmm. someone suggested we recorded them and um and there was over 30 of them um mostly in audio only format a few in video format which are on my website um and on Terence's website. Um, and they were just amazing conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the three-way formula worked very well. And what I is particularly 
uh, exciting for me is the fact that these conversations, which were between us as friends, we just so enjoyed talking with each other, uh, continued to um, help other people to have discussions with their friends. And our real aim in publishing them was to, to help with, to trigger off ongoing discussions between groups of friends. Mm. They're not debates in the sense that one of us is trying to win. Um, they're discussions, well, dialogues, where we're trying to talk together to find new ways forward. And those work very well. Yeah, a great podcast. It would have been a, if the podcast were then, you'd have been number one. I don't know if we'd have been number one, but we they, they, they were certainly like podcasts before podcasts. <laughs> I have an ongoing series, of course, on my YouTube channel um, and on my website uh, with Mark Vernon, who's a good friend. We, we're now up to number 60 in our series of podcasts, and there's a whole range of other ones for anyone who's interested. Okay, wonderful. And just one more thing before you go. I was, I was thinking about Sir Oliver Lodge and um, how science used to be you know, this was in the 19th century, but they were very, you know, he helped form the Society for Psychical Research and Paranormal Phenomenon. Um, and he invented the radio waves, you know, a year before Marconi in the Oxford University, he did the first radio transmission. So. Mm. And well, there were a lot of eminent scientists then who were indeed interested in psychic phenomena, who were much more open-minded. Yeah, we're about. going backwards. Yeah. Well, I think in practice, uh, what's interesting is you see that I don't think it's that there aren't open-minded scientists. There are quite a lot. I meet them a lot. Even you know, there are many working within scientific institutions. Some of them are good personal friends. But I think what's happened is that since science has become increasingly professionalized since the Second World War, um, it's become much more of a career. Um, and much more of a competitive career than it used to be. Um, you know, PhDs are now greatly overproduced. Any about a quarter of people getting science PhDs can hope to get a tenured academic position. So there's an intense competition for grants and for jobs. And in that situation, all subject to peer review, and peer review is a very conservative system. It favors conformity. Most people are very afraid to speak out in public um, in private, they have quite different views. And I know this for sure, for certain, because whenever I give a talk in a scientific institution on morphic resonance or telepathy or the science delusion, um, there's usually one or two Dawkins-type people who object to me being allowed to speak <laughs> in the first place. And uh, so people who invite me have to be quite brave. Um, and then when I give the talk, um, there's usually a sort of very subdued reception, you know, a few technical questions at the end, a kind of tentative atmosphere. But then during the tea or drinks reception afterwards, one after another, people come up to me very enthusiastically and you sort of look in both directions first to see if there's anyone listening and then say, you know, I've had these telepathic experiences. My dog knows when I'm coming home from the lab or I've had this amazing spiritual experience and I know there's a consciousness greater than our end. And they always say, but I can't tell my colleagues because they're all so straight. And sometimes six or seven people in the same institution say the same kinds of things to me. And I sometimes say, well, did you know he know he's interested in these things or she's interested in these things? I said, oh, no, no, they're not. They're really straight. I said, no, they're not. I know they're not because they've just told me. And so 
uh, actually the culture of science today is rather like uh, Russia under Brezhnev, you know, <laughs> where, where the number of people who are committed communists um, uh, was fairly small, but most people in public pretended to be because that's the way you got ahead and got jobs and got promoted and stuff. And if you went against it as a dissident and you were sent to a psychiatric institution, well, it's a bit like that in modern science. People, or a bit like gays in the 1950s, where mm. lots of gays were in the closet in the 1950s and pretended to be straight at work and in family settings and so on. Um, they couldn't come out of the closet. Um, well, I think there's lots and lots of scientists who are much more open-minded and holistically minded. Many have psychic experiences. Many have spiritual practices. Many have taken psychedelics and have had great revelations. Um, many um, have, have read books by me and other people who go against the orthodoxy. And yet they don't tell their colleagues. They're afraid to mention it. So I think one of the social transformations that will happen is when they have enough courage to come out of the closet. Um, and a coming out movement within science would, I think, show that it's very different from how most people, indeed, how most scientists themselves imagine it. Well, I'm so glad you're out of the closet and you're, you're doing a wonderful job and um, it gives hope. I just, what a world we live in, eh? Well, I hope your songs will help to move things along, Jack. I'll do the best I can. Thank you very mm. much for spending the time to chat to me. Well, very good to talk to you. Right. Okay. Bye then. Centuries of science have given us the answers we know. Matters unconscious we can show. Evolution's purposeless. The only reality's material reality. It's hazy that bit at the beginning How all mass and energy came into being And the laws that govern all of existence Appeared at once in a single instant
tuning in glad you enjoyed the show please share it with other people rate and review it on your podcast app and search out the song on any of the major music services or download directly from podsongs.com that's the best way to support us thanks to Maurizio Sanicola and Massimino Vodza for working with me on the music and Dori Verba my researcher and thanks to you the listener see you next time